Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I was just thinking that we've reached the point where there is essentially no living American who is not part of the Dr. Seuss generation. I mean, there is no the Dr. Seuss generation because it's basically, it's just about everybody who's alive right now. Um, the first book, I think, is in 1937. But, you know, I was born in 1954, and, and certainly for my baby boom generation, my rapidly aging baby boom generation, you know, we were saturated in Dr. Seuss. Uh, it's almost impossible to think of a person who wouldn't recognize the meter and some of the imagery, uh, some of the words. Uh, I used the word nerd in my newsletter yesterday, and I suddenly realize it's actually, I believe, first ever used by Dr. Seuss, um, maybe not exactly in the way that it gets used now. Uh, think about the Grinch, the cat in the hat. Think about that meter. I, I recently wrote uh, a piece for Hearst uh, in which I kind of turned uh, the Mueller report <laughs> into Dr. Seuss meter. But, you know, I didn't have to tell anybody what I was doing. It was the most popular thing I've written since I moved over to Hearst. The Funny Times just re-ran it. Everybody knows exactly what you're doing. Um, you don't have to explain it at all. That meter, that style of rhyme, uh, it's just, it's in all of us. It's, it's, it is part of our DNA at this point. So we're going to talk about him today. We're going to talk uh, about him to his biographer, uh, to one of his collaborators. And then we're going to talk to a philosopher about what could be derived philosophically from the work of Dr. Seuss. I think probably the biographer would say that Dr. Seuss would say nothing. Um, but uh, but let's find out more about that because, in fact, with us right now is Brian J. Jones, uh, author of Becoming Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel and the Making of an American Imagination. Uh, this is uh, a, a comprehensive uh, biography of the man who became Dr. Seuss. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good afternoon. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So, you know, one of the things that we do with anybody like, like Dr. Seuss, assuming there's anybody like Dr. Seuss, you know, we want to look behind and see if we can see how much does the man resemble his work? You know, what are the defining moments that, that turn him into who he became? You know, did he have some profound psychic wound that shaped him in a certain way? And, and in the case of, of this man born in Springfield 115 years ago, I mean, I think the first thing we notice about him, one of the early things we notice about him, although he's very interested in rhyming and drawing, you know, pretty much from the get-go, is how unlikely he is to become a success. This is a guy who kind of chafed under any kinds of tasks or rules or educational discipline, and, and as a result, was not voted most likely to succeed. Yeah, he's, you know, he's not one of these guys like Steven Spielberg who is filming his trains crashing into each other from age eight. Like, right. we, we can't see the trajectory of his life from very early on. And you're absolutely right. He's, uh, you know, he's not a, he's not a great student. Uh, once he gets into college at Dartmouth, he's still not a great student. And he gets into, uh, try to pursue his doctorate at Oxford. And he's a, you know, even worse student there. Um, so he, you know, he's one of these 
sort of different trajectories throughout his life, and that was one of the reasons that I called it Becoming Dr. Seuss, because he really fascinated me in that you, you can't see from day one where he's going to end up, and there's any number of times in his life that he could have become something else entirely. Uh, for example, the first trajectory of his life, if we want to just talk quickly about this, is you know he, after he gets out of Oxford, he gets into becoming a cartoonist and sort of lucks into a career doing advertising. And advertising, he's a hugely successful advertising man, sort of a you know 1920s Don Draper, um, and that's paying his bills for most of his early part of his career. I mean, it, it, it was you know he was very successful at that. Children's books were secondary to him at that point in his career. Um, he actually, there is a uh, a product called Flit, I believe, that he winds up uh, doing. And I, I don't remember this ad. I might just have missed it generationally. But uh, it's an ad that people remember. Yeah, it, it was sort of a where's the beef ad. It, that probably tags my age when I say that at this point. But it was this huge advertising campaign at the time. Flit was a bug spray. And the tagline that he had put on it was Quick Henry the Flit. And it was always in every ad, it was bugs ruining some sort of event. And people were saying, Quick Henry, give me the flit so I can kill the bugs. That tagline became this huge phenomenon. People, you know, comedians could use it as a go to joke and people would write songs about it. So, like, he created this huge sort of viral marketing campaign back in, you know, 1929. You know, also in this general period, he's in New York and he's also uh, working for a while as a freelance cartoonist at a time when you could kind of do that, that when that was, you know, a workable model where you could make some money. Um, And at that time, he's drawing cartoons that, as a lot of people have pointed out, don't wear very well against the sensibilities of 2019. Yeah, he was, you know, he was, it is hard to believe, first of all, you could make a living selling one-panel cartoons to Vanity Fair and Judge Magazine at that time. And he does end up landing a pretty good gig as the regular sort of paid cartoonist to judge. But a lot of his cartoons um, sort of rely on, not, not a lot, but a, you know, a lot of his, many of his cartoons rely on the sort of easy stereotypes prevalent at the time. I went back and looked at uh, you know, the art and the advertisements and the comic strips he would have been reading at the time, and they're all very much in line with that, you know, those very easy stereotypes for African-Americans and uh, Chinese people and, you know, the Irish and Jewish people. And even, you know, for him, if he would draw a millionaire, a millionaire has always had on the spats and the top hat and the monocle. That was like the Monopoly man. So he falls he falls very easily into those easy stereotypes. He does get much better about that. I think, as, as he even said at one point in his career, you know, I, I look back on those things and they seem funny at the time. Uh, and nowadays, I'm not so sure about that. He has a reason to be sensitive about this kind of thing anyway. Uh, growing up, born in 1904, so growing up in, one, in perhaps the first really heavy World War I-induced wave of anti-German sentiment. He grows up uh, in, a, in a very German family, and, a, and he's identifiably German, and that's kind of not cool with a lot of people. Yeah, he had stories that, you know, scarred him for the rest of his life. He would talk about when he was going to his first year in high school, running home from school, people throwing coal at him and saying, kill the Kaiser. Um, so he was, you know, he, he, he really had some sort of terrible memories of being discriminated against by association, which I think is why later in his life during World War II, when he's drawing cartoons that uh, are, are, you know, pretty insensitive to, be, to, be, uh, even to the Japanese-American the internment camps, 
um, it's something he should have known better um, because he had experienced that guilt by association. He really fell for it. That, I think, is probably the lowest point in his you know, sort of political outlook and not a good look for him because, again, in that particular case, he really should have known better. He had experienced that kind of discrimination himself. Right. Uh, it's, I, I, there's an odd juxtaposition I just on Monday uh, recorded for Future Air with the same producer who's producing your segment, um, uh, an interview with George Takei, formerly uh, Mr. Sulu, oh, yeah. who, who is you know, still very scarred by the Japanese internment experience and by th- indignities that were foisted onto his parents. And his voice shakes when he talks about some of these things. So, yeah, it's just an interesting juxtaposition between him and Geisel. So, you know, whenever I read a book like this, I, I, I'm almost bracing for the moment where my mouth kind of drops open by some interesting juxtaposition of people. Like you read Deborah Solomon's uh, biography of Norman Rockwell, and you find out that Eric Erickson was his psychotherapist, and you think, what? And so one of my <laughs> what moments in, in your book is that World War II brings together the, f- the future Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, Frank Capra, and Chuck Jones, who's really the seminal genius, I think, behind the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoon. So Frank Capra, who's Frank Capra, <laughs> Chuck Jones, uh, and Ted Geisel are all working together on a project. And it was really kind of Capra shepherding everything and maybe even deciding that Jones and Geisel, spotting something early in Geisel and thinking, yeah, maybe he should work with Chuck Jones. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think I think Capper knew they were a good fit. So uh, in World War II, Dr. Seuss uh, was was too old to be drafted. He was 39, so he enlisted and he got assigned to uh, the Signal Corps, stationed out in Hollywood. And so they were stationed on the old uh, 20th Century Fox lot. So they always called their ba- their base Fort Fox. And his big assignment was Frank Capper, who was his commanding officer. Uh, wanted him to develop car- these cartoons to teach and train the soldiers. You have to remember that in World War II almost half the soldiers, or a high number of them, were illiterate. Uh, and you could give them the best intention and most beautifully written brochures on how to apply you know, mosquito repellent so you don't get diseases and you don't get malaria, and they couldn't read them. So he brings in Dr. Seuss to sort of come up with this character, and it's a character that Capra had been nursing called Private Snafu, uh, who basically illustrates how to do things the military way by showing you what happens if you don't do them right. It's basically showing you how to do everything wrong and what the consequences are of that. And they, most of these cartoons end with Private Snafu getting blown up or beaten up or exploded or you know something falls on him or he ends up dead. Um, so the consequences are always very high. Uh, so he brings in Dr. Seuss to write these and storyboard them. And, and Capra really teaches him, uh, first of all, the, the, the real talent it takes to write a script concisely. At one point, he tells Dr. Seuss, I'm going to go through your script with a blue pencil, and I'm going to underline everything in the script that advances your plot. And if I hand this back to you and there's no blue, you have a real problem. Uh, and so Dr. Seuss, for the rest of his life, said, you know, that really taught me the value of conciseness and getting to the point and being able to make plot king, uh, which really drives his work then going forward. And Capra was smart enough to pair him with... Chuck Jones, who was a civilian at that point, over at Warner Brothers. And Chuck Jones at this point isn't the Chuck Jones we all know and love. I mean, he's, he's sort of an up-and-comer at this point. He hasn't done any of the classic stuff that we all know him for. Um, but a really good fit. You know, these two guys have a very similar sense of humor and really sort of speak the same language. And uh, they put together this really astounding, fun series of cartoons. You can go onto YouTube. They're public domain, so I can tell you this. You can go onto YouTube and Google Private Snafu, and you can find all of them on there. And they're these, you know, little six-minute cartoons hugely important to the war effort. And uh, it was something that Dr. Seuss was always really proud of. But that, that pairing together is really fun of, you know, Capra, 
Chuck Jones and Dr. Seuss. And the other big lesson that Dr. Seuss learns from this is how to storyboard, because um, he has to storyboard animation. That is something that he would apply to his own books, again, for the rest of his life, essentially drawing every page on a piece of paper, pinning it to a wall, and then moving pages around. That was the, a practice that he adhered to and taught other writers that after World War II. So just to give people kind of a sense, we can't obviously show you um, any uh, any clips uh, of some of this work, but let's hear uh, uh, one of these features, one of these animated uh, features that Dr. Seuss was hired to work on um, to warn people about things like spies. I just learned a secret. It's a honey. It's a pip. But the enemy is listening, so I'll never let it slip. Because when I learn a secret, boy, I zipper up my lip. I'm a sound and silent soldier, just as steady as a rock. Here's to my little secret with its chain and pattern lock. So you can hear a little bit of Chuck Jones and a little bit of that Seuss rhyme scheme uh, in there. Yep, and, and, and uh, yeah, the, the very familiar sounding voice, but written in that very Seussian verse. You know it the minute you hear it. Right. So, um, so Brian Jones, one of the things that I think emerges in this book, one of the th- things that, um, and feel free to object to this, but uh, one of the things that strikes me anyway is that this guy, Geisel, one of the things he doesn't do is wear anybody else's yoke very comfortably. He he, he bridles and he chafes uh, against people trying to tell him what to do, people trying to make him do things a, a certain way, people want him to act like a normal person. These are things that he's not particularly interested in. I mean, starting in Dartmouth, the reason that we even get this name, which I think was supposed to be pronounced Sois, uh, is because he's gotten kicked out of his humor magazine and he wants to keep working, so he makes up a name. Right. Well, that, you know, typical of Dr. Seuss. Uh, it, it's too good of a story to not use. It's not quite true because mm-hmm. he's been using that pseudonym for a little bit. Uh, the timing worked out because the the magazine in which he used that pseudonym appeared the same month <laughs> that he uh, was kicked off the magazine for drinking during Prohibition. We have to remember. Um, but but the timing worked out so well that it was a story for the rest of his life. He would say, you know, I essentially hid behind that Dr. Seuss pseudonym because they told me I couldn't contribute to the literary magazine that I was editing. Um, you know, there's a grain of truth in there. He couldn't contribute. What he actually started doing was not signing anything at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the very first Seuss signature does show up that month that he, again, is, is suspended essentially for drinking. you got to remember, it's, it's the height of prohibition. He's the son and grandson of very successful German brewers who have kind of lost everything because of prohibition, but you could never entirely take the brewery out for the brewers get there. I guess not. So there's also a way in which, um, in, in which that same yoke and bridle can kind of be the grain of sand that produces the pearl uh, in in Seuss's work. I mean, for example, if I understand this correctly, the Cat in the Hat, which. You know, I don't know what it, we're going to decide his signature work is, but the cat in the hat is about, you know, as big a deal as it gets. It really kind of arose from this list of 250 words that he was required to use, which he didn't like, right? He didn't like having to deal with that. But somehow or other, explain what the 250 word thing was. Sure. Yeah, did, did, not, did not like the limitations of that. He was essentially, ch- and th- this actually is the moment, I think, in his entire career when he finally becomes the full-blown Dr. Seuss, what we think of that. Because he's, he's 50 years old, and he has not really had a major hit yet. Advertising is still paying his bills at this point. He's had, you know, Horton Hatches an Egg and Hort- Horton Hears a Hoop. These books that we all know and love, hard to believe now, they weren't selling enough that he could live off of them, so he's still advertising. But the Cat in the Hat Project is the one where he's challenged by um, educators, essentially, to write a primer that kids can't put down. So he's competing against Dick and Jane. 
So he's challenged to write a book that a first grader can't put down. But the catch that he has is, you know, Dick and Jane, even if they're terrible and they appear to be living these lives of quiet desperation that kids thought were so boring, um, there's at least a pedagogy behind them. You've got a word list, an, an educator-approved word list you have to adhere to, and it's about 350 words for first graders. And so they tell Dr. Seuss, you know, you could write us a kid's book, but you can't go any, you can't use anything that's not on this word list. So it takes him about a year of just staring at that list to figure out what his story is going to be. Uh, and he finally says at one point he was going to just throw the thing across the room, be done with it, but decided to make one more pass and figure out if there were at least what his first two words that would rhyme, that would be his story. Um, once again, that's him telling a great story that doesn't quite land because tall ball was actually the first thing that lines that rhymes. Unfortunately, he didn't go with that. But cat and hat were the first words he found that rhymed and he liked sort of the sound of them. So that gave him his subject and his topic for the book. It still takes him another year to write the book then after that because, again, he's, he's hamstrung by this straitjacket of a very limited vocabulary. You know, there's no, there's no plurals on it. There's no possessives. Um, you know, it's very much verb now, not a lot of adjectives. So he really has to play around with this. And when you look at the final book, watch what he's doing in here, because um, he, there's a lot of repetition going on. Sometimes he's rhyming words with themselves. There's one moment when the cat gets up on a ball and starts juggling, and he starts juggling, you know, a little man in a boat in a car, and it's, and it's the opportunity for Dr. Seuss to sort of download all the words off of this list and get as many of them on the page as he can. So he's doing some really clever things with this limited word list, and he does end up using, I think, about 250, 280 words from that list. Really, really hard, but it ends up being um, the, the, the juggernaut book that he needs. That's the book that is such a huge success that he can finally become Dr. Seuss full time. And uh, he always said the rest of his life he was so proud of that book because it also shoved Dick and Jane right out of the classroom. Well, yeah, I mean, it did, although I, I can say that having been an elementary school student starting around, you know, 1960 or so, school librarians and teachers were not in love with Seuss's uh, books you know, a, a lot of times. they It struck them as kind of cartoony. And in the case of Cat in the Hat, and we should talk about this briefly, there's something very subversive about Cat in the Hat, right? This is not Dick and Jane who were the products of this ill-advised post-war sunniness, you know, this kind of Eisenhower era of good cheer. Uh, here's you get these kids who really, you know, get inveigled into doing something wrong uh, by this very chaos-sowing figure, you know, and they're yeah. constantly being remonstrated with by a fish. The fish is like the only moral authority in the entire book. And then they hide the whole thing. Um, you know, it's like it's like <laughs> right. risky business. It's like the movie Risky Business. Like they clean the whole thing up. <laughs> And, and so, <laughs> you know, we trust you, Joel. Yeah, exactly. We trust you, Joel. So, you know, this is this is. I don't know if the, I don't know what else was out there, but it strikes me this is nothing like any piece of children's literature in the late 1950s. No, and again, that's why I think it was it was such it, like uh, an explosion in both the classroom and in, in kids' books in general because it didn't look like anything else for the very reason. So, I mean, the cat comes in and he is the he's the lord of misrule. I mean, this is chaos coming into the household. And before that, again, the book you'd had before 
you know, Dick and Jane on the teeter totter and kicking the ball, and the ball is red, 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 red. Look, spot, look. Um, this doesn't look like that. It doesn't sound like that. And it is just the book itself is just it's it's fast paced. The cat's feet, if you look at the book, are never on the ground. He's always moving. Uh, it's just absolute chaos. I mean, it's it's essentially uh, rock and roll in children's books. You know, in 1950, 1957. Uh, this is about the same time you know Buddy Holly's coming out. So you've got rock and roll here in the on the, in these kids' books now. So I think that's one of the reasons educators are like, nah, we're not so sure about that. Um, so they didn't put Cat in the Hat in the classroom at that time, but parents went nuts for it because it was a book they could read with kids, and it wasn't boring. And um, you didn't have a lot of really exciting books for kids at the time. You know, you asked a little bit about what was out there at the time. You didn't really have a lot of creator-driven, sort of character-driven books. You had Ferdinand the Bull was out there, and Eloise was out there, and Curious George was coming around. Uh, but this is the first time you've got this very distinctive character who just comes in and just, like you said, makes a gigantic mess, cleans it all up, and they're out of there, to the point that some people even debate whether the cat was actually real. Right. <laughs> um, and, he, and he does call the fish uh, his, his version of Cotton Mather. In the right. You're right. The, the fish is, is, the, conscious, is the, the conscience of the, of the book in there, saying, you know, you can't do this when the parents aren't home. Um, but just, but then cleans his mess up, and out he goes. So uh, it just, again, it didn't look or sound or feel like anything out of there. This, again, is rock and roll in the kids' books world. Right. I think Sendak at that point is drawing his little bear books. He, he's not going to get wild and crazy for a while. Um, no, not yet, that's for sure. So, so, I mean, a couple of points worth making. So that, there's a little bit of Geisel in the cat in the hat. This is a guy who, the more that you tried to control him, the more you tried to get him to act like a, a, a normal person or later on in his life when his wife is trying to get him to quit smoking because he's a very heavy smoker and he's getting kind of old and it's dangerous it almost seems to impel him to smoke even more or find various ways of getting cigarettes when she's trying to keep them away from him but I also I want you to tell a very quickly a story from that later period of his life uh, this is the story of the benefit I think it's at a Neiman Marcus uh, in San Diego where he's expected to mingle and be a normal person what does he do? Yeah, instead, first of all, he's, he's bored to tears with crowds by that point in his life and standing in line and doing the grin and grab and the handshakes. Uh, he disappears, and they find him later in the shoe department changing all the price tags around on all the shoes. So with, you know, again, no clear regard for uh, for the for the norm or for the process in there. No, Lord of Misrule in the shoe department. Absolutely. I, I think the other thing that's important to m- mention is he didn't have kids. He didn't he did not re- have kids, right? yeah didn't really express a great fondness for children, generally speaking, and and initially didn't want to be doing children's books. Right? He really thought that was kind of a step down from what he envisioned for himself. Yeah, it, it does take him a while to come to an understanding or at least convincing himself that writing books for children is something that a respecting, you know, any self-respecting grown-up could be doing. It takes him a bit to get there. Uh, and again, he gets into writing kids' books not because of some huge compelling need to tell stories for kids. He gets to that later. Um, but because there's money on the table. You know, he's, he's got a very successful advertising contract with Standard Oil to do the Flip campaign uh, that prohibits him from doing a lot of things, taking a lot of outside work. But kids' books are not on that list. So he does end up that I saw it on Mulberry Street because he's not prohibited from his contract for doing that. So that's sort of how he starts his career. 
once he gets into it, um, there's a big moment in 1949 where he's asked to teach a writer's workshop at the University of Utah, and it's the first time he's really asked to put down in writing why he does what he does. And I, I think that's the moment where he's just come out of you know World War II, and Capra's put a lot of stuff into his head about storytelling, and you know Chuck Jones has talked to him about storyboarding. Um, but it's the first time he starts putting it down on the page and really comes to appreciate, you know, this is really hard work. Uh, but one of the things he also puts in his classroom notes that's so important, and I think this is what really defines him in his work, is he keeps reminding these writers, don't you dare write down to a child. Right. They will see right through you. They're the smartest readers out there. They will see you coming a mile away. Uh, and the other thing he kept telling them is stop writing books that you think that you as an adult think kids should be reading. He called those the bunny books, and that was the worst thing he could ever call a book was a bunny book because he thought that was patronizing the children. So, I, I mean, that's a huge moment. That, that's, a, that's a watershed moment in children's literature. It's Dr. Seuss coming out saying, stop treating them like they're stupid. Talk to them, not down to them. It's really, really huge. This also is something that later on, Sendak, who I think is maybe the closest thing to Seuss, although never with his, quite his penetration and pervasiveness, he kind of says the same stuff. Like, you know, don't, don't worry about whether my books are scaring your kids or, you know, or uh, introducing all kinds of disturbing imagery. They already have disturbing imagery in, right. their, in their heads, their kids. Right. They'll be fine. Yeah. Right. All right. Let's grab a quick break here. Uh, we're going to uh, add to our conversation somebody who emerges as a character, you might say, uh, in uh, Brian's book. Uh, you'll meet her after this. It ain't love my Dr. Seussness. Oh, call me Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. There's something to be said about the pervasiveness of Dr. Seuss. I mean, he really is. As I said at the top of the show, he's kind of everywhere, and he's in everybody's head, and he's in everybody's—the meter is in everybody's minds. And even, even like, the way—like, I don't—I haven't looked at this book— well, let's see, my son is 29 now. So I'm going to say I probably haven't looked at this book in 22 years. But I, I can already—I'm pretty sure I can do— Look what we found in the dark, in the park. We will take him home. We will call him Clark. He will live at our house. He will grow and grow. Will our parents like us like that? We don't know. Uh, all right. So meanwhile, I'm not the only one influenced by this. Uh, here's none other than the redoubtable Ted Cruz uh, in the midst of a filibuster. I, about, about Obamacare? Is that what this is? Okay. That Sam I am, that Sam I am. I do not like that Sam I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Would you like them here or there? I would not like them here or there. I would not like them anywhere. I do not like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, Sam I am. We're going to get complaints about that. People are going to say, boy, that actually wrecks Dr. Seuss hearing Ted Cruz read it and read it inelegantly, I might add. All right. Joining us now uh, is someone who knew uh, a lot about Dr. Seuss in his golden years because she knew Dr. Seuss. Uh, Kathy Goldsmith uh, is with us, former art director at Random House Publishing and longtime artistic collaborator with Dr. Seuss himself. Uh, thanks for joining this conversation. I'm pleased to do so. 
So maybe just tell us uh, what it's like to be thrown uh, into the orbit of somebody who's already such a titan, such a giant. Uh, It must be hard to walk up to Dr. Seuss and say, hey, I'm going to be your new collaborator. Well, you're certainly accurate on that point. Uh, I was 28 when I first met Ted. He was, I'm thinking, 72, um, and clearly the most famous person I'd ever met then, and probably to this day. Uh, And it was just amazing, because it never occurred to me that I would have the good fortune to work with somebody of that stature. Did you know that you could call him Ted? Did you know how to address him? I did not. Um, In those days, uh, so I'm talking 1977 when I met him, I People, you didn't call people by their first names, and if I had, my mother would have killed me if she'd found out. Uh, and I think he actually knew that I didn't know what to call him. Everybody in the office called him Ted. They didn't call him Dr. Seuss. They didn't call him Mr. Geisel. They called him Ted, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So being the person that he was, he leaned over and said very quietly in my ear, you call me Ted, and I will call you Kathy, because if you don't, I will call you Little You. And I thought, oh, my (laughs) gosh, I will be known for the rest of my career as Little You Goldsmith, and we can't have that. So I did call him Ted, but it was not easy to do so initially. So in terms of working with him, collaborating him, I I gather that obviously your role would have been heavily oriented towards the visual as opposed to the verbal side of his work. And I guess a lot of times it had to do with with color, right? Yes. Um, With the exception of three of his books where Ted actually painted the art in full color, most of the time he drew black line art and used flat colors fill in areas that he designated. And so while the early books are in limited color palette, if you think of something like, well, even the cat in the hat where you have, where you have tones of red, tones of blue and black, you don't have the full gamut of every color of the rainbow. Later on, by the middle of the middle early to early early to mid 60s, he's using full color in his books. And then he had lots of choices as to what color the boy's shirt would be, what color the rug would be, etc. So a lot of times um, we would talk about color. Yes. Um, and, And when you talked about color, once again, you're a very young person. He is a titan. Um, it probably isn't easy to say, well, I, don't, I think this should be a different shade of blue or something like that. How open was he to other people's ideas? Well, I think he, I think he was open to some ideas, but you have to also remember that, that Ted's sense of color was so uniquely his own mm-hmm. that when you first run into it, you, you can't actually participate in a discussion of it on any kind of meaningful level. You've right. got to learn a little bit about it first. Um, so I do remember one time we worked, uh, he had made a deal to do a couple of, uh, jigsaw puzzles, large format jigsaw puzzles with a company. And he said to me, why don't you take, you know, take a shot at figuring out what the colors would be first. And then I'll take a look at what you've done and we'll fix it up. And I thought, okay. And I sent it out to him and he came back and he said to me, your snow is too white. And I thought, oh Mm -hmm. my goodness, what does that mean? You know, (laughs) and I should have known better. You know, he said to me, your snow should be, and he gave me the number of a color off of this color chart that we used for him um, at that point in time, I thought, that's no, that's not white. That's like a pale mint green. And um, But I tried it, and I put it in position. And in point of fact, in the composition, even though it wasn't white, it was it functioned as white. 
So I should I should have known better than to doubt him initially. Um, but yes, it took a while to figure out his sense of color. For sure. So uh, last May and June, something happens that happens every single year, which is that a book called oh, The Places You'll Go goes rocketing back up the bestseller list because it's everybody's graduation gift and is such a go-to book. This is something you were kind of in on the creation of this. Uh, and I, I, I think I remember from Brian Jones's book, didn't you have to transport it back on a plane or something uh, in a box? I Well, I actually did bring the art, the the line art back with me from California. Um, Ted had, I mean, uh, we need to limit what I claim um, that I had to do with that book, because in point of fact, Ted had written the entire book and he had drawn the entire book, but he was sick at that point in his life. And I think he was, and he was not well enough to bring the book into New York as he usually did. Uh, And he asked whether I would come out and stay with him for a couple of days while he finished up the color. I think he thought he wasn't going to actually get there himself. He was that ill at the time. And so I did. I went out to California, and I stayed at the house with Ted and Audrey, and we worked on, I would say, maybe the last third of the color choices in the book. But a lot of the book was already, most of the book was done when I arrived there, but I did help him with what needed to be finished up, for sure. So, so and it, it's, you know, people, even when the book came out, I think some people thought, oh, wow, he's saying goodbye to us. And although I don't get the feeling that that's exactly what he thought he was doing, it was more like a benediction, right? It wasn't so much goodbye as you're going to be okay. I, I agree with you on that point. I, um, I think that these were, these were things he'd been thinking about for a while. He wanted to put them together, but I think he also wanted to say to, to, to readers that, that, that life is a journey that you take some zigs and some zags, but ultimately you'll be okay. So after uh, his death, uh, you turned into the person people call when they find something or, or something new pops up. So tell us about what pets should I get, uh, how that came to be discovered and published. Well, I was in my office here at Random House one day, and I got a call from Claudia Prescott, who had been Ted's longtime assistant when he was alive and who stayed on with Ted's widow, Audrey, after he died. And she said that that she and Audrey had found a box in the closet that had some things in it that she thought Random House would be interested in seeing. Could we come and take a look? And I thought, sure, mm-hmm. because I couldn't, I'd never had a phone call like that before, and I couldn't imagine being you know, invited out to see, you know, I don't, something that wasn't of interest to us as a publisher. So my boss and I were on a plane about three days later on our way to California. And and uh, this is a book that seems to date back or have some kind of affinity for the brother and sister we meet in One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, right? Absolutely. Um, I'm thinking this book actually maybe came first, Uh, because it's a more straightforward book. It talks about real pets initially. It's talking about kittens and puppies and birds and fish and maybe a frog, etc. But towards the end, Ted spins off into into a little riff about some made-up pets that he might get. And I think, in point of fact, he got so taken up with with the idea of of made-up crazy fantastical animals that they became another book, which eventually became known as One Fish, Two Fish. But clearly, the kids are the same kids. They look the same. Their clothes are the same. Um, So I think they actually started out pretty closely paired. 
Right. You know, in talking to Brian Jones, uh, there just wasn't time enough to go through this, but he grew up in Springfield, uh, not too far from the Forest Park Zoo. And it seems as though that zoo stayed with him. And this idea of exotic animals who weren't doggies or kitties (laughs) stayed in his head for a long time. Didn't he even try to make sculptures uh, of imaginary animals? Yes, he actually had um, a number of them in his, in his studios at the house where he would take antlers and, and bones and assemble them with other things to make fantastical creatures. So, All right. Well, I, I'm holding now in my hand uh, something called Dr. Seuss's Horse Museum. And I have to say Ooh, that— You are lucky to have that. <laughs> right. So we have to say it's coming out in when? September? The first week in September, yes. Right. Now, it doesn't look like a Dr. Seuss book in the sense that, first of all, it's illustrated by Andrew Joyner. uh, So tell us, what is it? What is this book that I am holding in my hands? Well, that that also comes from something that was in the same box as one pet. Uh, what pet should I get? Um, it was the beginning of a of a manuscript which was known as Horse Museum, and as opposed to What Pet, where Ted left us a complete manuscript and complete um, line art. In this case, it was just some sketches and um, some notes about a museum that he um, imagined, where all the art inside were horses, and what did this tell us about visuals, etc. Um, and what did it tell us about art and about seeing and about creativity? Uh, we've always thought, since we saw it the first time, that it was something that we would want to develop, and I'm happy to say we finally did. Right. So it is. It's a kind of a walk through the world of art. Uh, horses, I, I don't know why he chose horses, but we just said he liked animals. Um, so so you get to see what Jackson Pollock's idea of a horse is, for example. Um, so uh, before we go here, um, I am told, without actually being told the entire story, that you have a story that involves Dr. Seuss and a lime. Tell us about the lime. Uh, yes. Um after I w- was in California when I was working with Ted on finishing up Oh, the Places, uh, I came back to New York. I brought the art with me on the plane, um, and we put started to doing the work that you do before a book is published, you know, doing the color fill and the seeing proofs, mm. et cetera. And I get a package in the mail one day, and I open it up, and it's a little tiny, looks to me like a jeweler's box that you would hold a small ring or a pendant in. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, I cannot get take except jewelry from him that you know we we work together you know he could send me an address book or something like that but not a piece of jewelry and i should have known better again but i opened it up and inside of the this jeweler's box was not a piece of jewelry but one tiny perfect miniature lime because when i had been in california around his pool ted had a number of miniature citrus trees and the note that came with my lime was um, enclosed um, to the newly elected vice president of the Meyer B. Meyer Lime Tree. Enclosed is your share of this year's <laughs> harvest. Parentheses. The cat gets one third, I get one third, and enclosed is your third. Okay? So that was one lime is what I got. And I thought this is just too wonderful, you know, just absolutely too wonderful. And it sort of shows you that he was funny and he could be wickedly funny as well. So So whatever became of the lime? I did exact I should have bronzed it, but I did what he told me. I made a 
gin and tonic with it. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, that's one of the most famous gin, gin and tonics ever consumed. Uh, Kathy Goldsmith, a delight to talk to you, former art director at a Random House Publishing and longtime artistic collaborator with the great Dr. Seuss himself. Thanks for talking to me. Thanks for talking to me. Enjoyed uh, it. Okay, now we're going to end up with um, somebody who has explored the question of Dr. Seuss's philosophy. What can we divine about his philosophy, or about, about philosophy in general, from his books? I will be explaining my theory of the Apollonian and the Dionysian as expressed in The Fish and the Cat in the Hat. With fantabulous pictures That playful we pleased He wrote about oobax And rockets and zoos And hunches and punches And Horton and Hoos All right, I should point out that this show was conceived of and produced. Uh, I should have been doing this in some kind of meter, but I, I didn't get around to that. Uh, so Josh Nalea is the person who conceived and produced uh, this show. I think I see Jesse Steinmetz over there on the phones, one of our great interns uh, this summer. Kion Wolf, as usual, is on the board, making the show sound great, picking on all, all, all that terrific music you're hearing during the breaks as well. Uh, joining us now for our final segment here is Jacob Held, professor of philosophy at the University of Central Arkansas and author of several books, including Philosophy and Dr. Seuss, Oh, the Things You Can Think. He's also the editor, most recently, of More Dr. Seuss and Philosophy, Additional Hunches in Bunches. Uh, Jacob Held, welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much for having me. So let's start with the title of that first book, All the Th- Oh, the Things You Can Think. Uh, it's obviously a play on Oh, the Places You'll Go, the book we were talking about at the end of the last segment. So uh, what do you see there as a philosopher uh, in that book? I think it may be different from what I see. So let's go. <laughs> well, um, the, the way I conceived of the book was, was seeing Dr. Seuss as a vehicle for kind of teaching philosophy. Um, so it's not really looking at Seuss's philosophy, trying to put you know words into his mouth or anything, but it's very much trying to see if if there's ideas, if there's ways to use his parables to help kind of explain the deeper questions that philosophy asks. And the the basic idea for me as a philosophy teacher who who teaches you know 18 year olds who come to college and have never had philosophy was how do I make this stuff that I've spent my life learning accessible to people? Right, I find it valuable, but very few people are going to take the time and energy necessary, nor should they, to sit down and make it through Hegel or make it through Fichte or Kant. And so, how is it that I can make that accessible? to people and and you know reading Dr. Seuss to my kids remembering it from when I was a kid a lot of the important stuff that you want to do with philosophy is in there right a lot of the questions about the meaning of life and how do you treat people and how do you deal with people and what can you know all those basic philosophical questions are played with in Dr. Seuss and I thought well this is just a, a, an easy bridge an easy narrative to kind of bring the headier more esoteric almost obscuritanist philosophy to make it accessible to people, which it should be. Sure. So All the Places You Go is written at near the end of his life. He actually thinks he's dying. He winds up living a few more years than that. But um, So it, it could be viewed as summing up what he's learned so far. Um, if so, what has he learned so far? Or, or what would you well, teach from that book? I, I, I grant your point that he probably didn't put anything in there that he necessarily thought was a work of philosophy. As a, as a philosophy teacher, what would you teach from that book? I think the the important thing in there, and you see the theme in several of his other works, 
So you've got, um, I had trouble in getting to Sala Salu, or um, did I ever tell you how lucky you are? Uh, these books really take a human being, take a person, and put and basically give this narrative of life's going to be hard, and you're going to have all these failures, and you're going to suffer, and you're and there's a dark part in the middle of all the places where you can go where. Uh, where he's talking about how lonely you're going to be, and that's going to be like your life is going to be lonely and in this waiting place. And I think what's really the the crux of that or the other ones I mentioned is, is near the end, where it's now how do you respond? Now how do you respond to failure? How do you respond to suffering? And, and the response is is similar in in his in all his works. It's it's that that phrase at the end of, oh, the places you'll go, which is, you know, you're going to succeed 98 and three quarters percent guaranteed. The idea being that the the success of your life isn't measured by fame or money or any of these other things. It's it's measured by how you approach it and and how you continue through the difficult times. And, 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 and it's about integrity and honor and, and these kinds of issues. And it's a very ancient message. I mean, it's, it's platonic, it's Aristotelian, it's stoic. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's good. It's good for people to, to, you know, understand life as a narrative in that regard. And, well, and I think that's probably what he's, what he's playing at. Although the book story. has, the book has some philosophical detractors. You see it almost as this kind of Ayn Randian um, affirmation of self-determination and individual supremacy. There's that, you know, wherever you fly, you'll be best of the best. Wherever you go, you will top all the rest. I mean, there's also kind of a Lake Wobegon problem in there. Everybody can't be the best of the best. Yeah, well, and, and he does say, except when you don't, mm-hmm. right? Or, yeah. So, so I, I think he is kind. Of, I mean, there is that. It's the same, and as I mentioned, the other story. I had troubles in getting to Sala Salu, right? He yeah. he ends that one with "I've bought a big bat," and right, my troubles are going to have troubles with me, kind of thing, which is this very Nietzschean you know, self-deterministic kind of message about you're, as an individual, going to conquer these things. Um, I I don't think that's necessarily, I was going to say necessarily bad, but I don't want (laughs) to necessarily make Anne Randian and bad synonyms, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Actually, um, on this show, you're allowed to, but go ahead. You have to live your life, so. I'm treading treading lightly here, so. So, um, but, but I don't think there's anything necessarily negative about, pulling in that individual integrity, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's important to say is you do have, you do have to make choices. Now, the world's going to happen to you, but you do, you do respond how you respond. You determine your response. You determine your attitude. And I think that's important. And, and he does set up failure and suffering in there. So he's not this kind of, you're going to conquer everything and you should be in charge and right in this, this John Galtian kind of way. But. <laughs> um, so um, I don't know whether, I, if I were a philosophy professor, first of all, I probably wouldn't be very good at it. But second of all, uh, I would want to teach Cat in the Hat. Because uh, to me, that's a really interesting one. It's one of the few times that Seuss, you know, he wasn't really comfortable imputing a lot of philosophical content to what he did. Although he did say that the fish in Cat in the Hat is his Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather being this kind of censorious, Puritan, divine, mm-hmm. Um, and it is. This is an interesting clash, right, of the uh, of the Dionysian cat in the hat and the Apollonian uh, fish. And, and there's also kind of a synthesis, ultimately. There's a, a way in which you have your fun, you clean it up. Um, you know, maybe you can find some way of fusing these two uh, opposite strains in the human condition. Well, and, and a sense that you trust the children, 
mm-hmm. right? That, that they get it right in the end. So, so the cat comes in and he's chaos, right? He's obviously the Dionysian. He's just a free spirit. He's gonna, you know, show them how to just throw uh, throw out all the rules and do whatever they want. And the fish is obviously then Apollonian, right? The fish is is saying, "Here's the rules. Don't do this." Um, the interesting thing in that is is there's that message that that you do need the synthesis that the kids learn to be fun and creative and to not be just dour and sad on a rainy day. But at the end of it, right, the the kids are like, but this needs to be cleaned up. This needs to, right, there needs to be some sense of responsibility about it at the end. So you don't have to, you know, be this, the fish is, right, censorious kind of nature. You don't have to just not do anything, but, but you do have to have, bounds of it, right? And I think that's probably the synthesis in there. But but there is an interesting idea there about trusting children, which, yes. which as a parent of three, um, I don't think we do enough, right? They're very... We live, thankfully, in a fairly safe... Most people that are probably listening live in a fairly safe and secure world where your kids probably aren't going to have horrible things happen to them, right? It, Hopefully, if you leave them alone or what have you, but we try to overregulate. We try to schedule all their minutes, mm-hmm. everything they do. You know, you hear about a parent leaving a kid at a park and having child services called on them, and and there's a sense in which you go, you know, most things come out in the wash. They're really okay, and so trust the children, right? The, you, let them do their stuff. Let them be weird. Let them be creative. Let them be, you know crazy, they'll figure out what's important and what's not in the long run. They, they know what matters. So uh, we've only got about two minutes left. Uh, it might be, if we could quickly do this uh, talk about the Sneetches, I think uh, Theodore Gazelle said that uh, the Lorax was his only piece of actual propaganda. But the Sneetches, the Starbelly Sneetches and the Plainbelly Sneetches, uh, who engaged in this arbi- these arbitrary acts of prejudice, mm-hmm. uh, probably echoing a little bit the prejudice Geisel experienced as a German-American mm-hmm. after World War One. This is a, a, a pretty philosophical thing he's tackling. You've you got about 60 seconds. Teach us a mini-class. Well, um, I, the obvious lesson of the Sneetches is the racism, that, that you don't, you know, you don't want to judge people by their appearance, that we're all fundamentally the same. But I think more interesting is uh, an aspect of it that gets lost, which is the consumerism. It, it's not fundamentally a racist a story about racism, as I think it is about classism, that you're saying if you can buy the star, you're worthwhile, and then you pay to get it taken off. And it's this idea of trying to buy worth and buy self-worth through consumption. And I think there, there's an interesting, even if he doesn't uh, intend it, an interesting almost Marxist strain to that thinking, this idea that you can't consume value, you can't consume self-worth, that to, to commodify it in this way is going to ultimately make you a victim to the charlatans who are trying to sell you that image. And so I think there's an anti-consumerist message there and, and this idea of self-worth coming from within. So there's the obvious on the surface of it, the, the racial uh, component to the story, but I also think there's the consumerist one, which both ultimately come down to this idea of integrity and self-worth. Jacob Held, I gave you 60 seconds. You delivered uh, the author of Philosophy and Dr. Seuss, Oh, The Things You Can Think, also editor of More Dr. Seuss and Philosophy, Additional Hunches in Bunches. Go have lunches. Some lose again.